2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Jonquilin Hill. We are so very close to the end of the midterm election cycle, and that means candidates are making their closing arguments, hoping to turn voters out in their favor. After all, control of the House and the Senate are up for grabs. Undecided voters are increasingly elusive and increasingly important. And there's one narrative that's emerged in the effort to get the undecided suburban white voter. Crime. According to the FBI, violent crime was up last year. Experts are still grappling with the why and even how accurate those numbers are. But right now, politicians are focusing on what it could mean at the polls. It's complicated and messy, and it's actually not that new. Here to get into the latest stats is Nicole Norea. She covers politics and policy for Vox. So, Nicole, first of all, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: The FBI recently released its 2021 crime stats, and according to that, crime is up. But what does that mean? What are we seeing?
3: This is a trend that started during the pandemic and under President Trump, Crime levels are still much lower than the historical highs that we saw in the 1990s when, at their peak, there were almost 760 crimes committed per 100,000 people. In 2020, it was about 403, and it's down a little bit since then. And in 2020, it was like particularly violent crime and some levels of property crime that rose across the country um, in communities of all types. The murder rate notably jumped 29% that year, and also about 8 in 10 of the murders that year involved a firearm, which is the highest share since at least 1968. And that also tracks with the kind of record gun sales that we saw during the pandemic. There's not really like an easy explanation for why that happened, but A lot of experts have pointed to just kind of the destabilization that happened during the pandemic, gun violence, worries about the economy, the kind of like intensely stressful environment that we were in. In 2021, both violent and property crime have remained generally stable, but we kind of have to take that data with a grain of salt because the national data that we have for 2021 is far from complete, the FBI switched over to a new crime statistics collection program in 2021. And as a result of that, a lot of law enforcement agencies around the country didn't submit data to that program because they were unprepared. Oh, So yeah, it was about 40% 40% of law enforcement agencies didn't actually report anything. And that was, like, including in big population centers like New York City and Los Angeles, as well as a lot of agencies in five of the six most populous states. Oh, oh wow. So, so yeah, it's really hard to sort of parse any trends based on that data. And, of course, like, Republicans are kind of going to try to exploit that hole and spin the narrative they see fit.
2: How do we know crime is up? Is it up even without the data from those major metropolitan areas are they summarizing like how do we have an accurate look at how crime looks in this country
3: based on the data that we have people are saying that well it looks like things are getting better since 2020 but at the same time you know it's it's really hard to tell experts um are in the media on this data saying that we can't really draw firm conclusions from this. And unfortunately, in 2022, agencies are struggling to report data to this new program, like at least in the first couple of quarters. So it looks like this is going to be a much longer term problem Mm -hmm. in terms of being actually able to ascertain what is happening with crime in the country. And it's also coming at just the absolute worst time, given that we did see a major spike in crime in 2020, and this is something that's, like, clearly at the forefront of voters' minds. So, yeah, unfortunately, the data doesn't offer us that much clarity.
2: So we're missing major metropolitan cities, which, I mean, population-wise probably <laughs> accounts for quite a bit. And and there is this rise, but where do we know that we're seeing the rise in crime? Where Where is it rising?
3: So I know that Republicans are trying to frame this as like a blue city, blue state problem, but that's really not true. It's happening across the board. So relative to 2019, the number of murders jumped by more than 30% in the largest cities and by 20% in suburban areas. Murders rose also by comparable levels in rural areas. And they also rose equally in cities run by Republicans and cities run by Democrats and, you know, something that I, I found really interesting was that red states actually saw some of the highest murder rates of all. So it's really something that's happening in communities of all political stripes. And this is not just like really concentrated in blue cities.
2: Okay, so crime is on the rise. Like, these fears are not necessarily unfounded.
3: Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. But again, like, based on the data that we have, we can only draw sort of limited conclusions about why that might be happening or, or to what extent it's getting better or worse.
2: Nicole, you live in Texas and you do a lot of reporting on the ground, talking to voters. What are you seeing in regards to
3: both crime and also how it's being treated in the election where you are? I've been on the ground, both in Texas and in North Carolina, recently talking to voters, trying to like get a sense especially about how independents are thinking about it. And it is something that they voluntarily bring up, that they're worried about rising crime rates and feel that Democrats in particular are, are ill-suited to addressing that problem. And that does track with national polling. There was like a recent Reuters poll that showed that most voters preferred Republicans to Democrats in terms of dealing with this problem. but you know, as I mentioned, on the campaign trail, there's definitely politicians that are are trying to exploit these gaps in the data. And, you know, over the last month or so, we've seen the GOP kind of closing argument, focusing on crime and trying to misleadingly hammer Democrats as supporters of defund the police. And it's clear that that messaging is breaking through. About 60% said in one October morning consult poll that crime would play a major role in deciding who they would vote for. So it is clear that this is something that's on voters' minds. And something that they volunteer as one of their biggest priorities going into November.
2: So when it comes to crime, what is it exactly people are concerned about?
3: So it's interesting, like when you dig into the data, it differs based on what kind of crimes people are most worried about. So there was one Gallup poll from 2021 that showed people started worrying more about getting mugged, having their car stolen or broken into, having their home burglarized, being attacked while driving, being a victim of identity theft getting murdered, being a victim of terrorism. But at the same time, it's interesting because those are crimes that people are afraid of being victimized by, but there's also this big push, particularly among leftists, to implement more gun control. In 2021, we saw a 59 to 35% margin in favor of implementing more gun control, which is the highest recorded in a decade. And that sort of just shows you that there's a lot of different concerns that go into this, and it's not just necessarily people feeling personally victimized by crimes, but also just wanting to reduce violence in their community and seeing like guns as a source of that as well. So it does mean different things to different people. And I think that's why it's in some ways such an effective campaign tool for Republicans, because people can sort of look at these attacks and see it the way they want want to see it and the way that they feel it resonates uh, with them in their lives.
2: That demographic info is so interesting. Is there, I mean, are there any hypotheses out there about why
3: some people are more afraid of crime than others? I've seen some research in the past in terms of the Republican psyche being perhaps more sensitive to this sort of fear-based messaging. They're just, in general, more risk-averse when it comes to this. Obviously, like, women might be more likely to be victimized in these kinds of situations, but... I think it's really interesting that Democrats and left-leaning people are, are just generally not as worried about it, and maybe that speaks to something different about the way that Democrats and Republicans are hard-fired. We need to take a quick break, but when we
2: get back, we'll get into the backstory of how Democrats got the reputation of being soft on crime. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P.
0: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates?
2: Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Glyn Hill, here with Vox Politics reporter Nicole Norea. Nicole, how far back does this narrative around crime and the election season go?
3: Yeah, it's kind of a time-old attack at this point from Republicans, but I think if we wanted to address a particular inflection point, it was probably the 1980 election.
0: Bush and Dukakis on crime.
3: During that election, Bush Sr., made William Horton, who was a convict from Massachusetts, who had been serving time for murder and-
0: Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes, Dukakis on crime.
3: He made that person like a central figure in his campaign. Also worth noting that he was a black man. So there was some very obvious racial undertones there, and he was attacked as being racist for making Horton a central figure in his campaign. In the end, his opponent, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, didn't win the election. And part of that was because these sort of soft on crime attacks landed. But, you know, it's basically been the same playbook in the years since, if we're thinking about somebody who really pioneered it, it was probably George H.W. Bush.
2: I think it's interesting that you bring up the Willie Horton ad. I mean, the numbers show that there is this concern about crime, but is this— really about crime? Are there other things going on? Like, what other fears is
3: this tapping into? When we're looking at the populations that are sort of most worried about crime, and as I mentioned earlier, it's sort of more of this suburban women over a certain age, it is maybe tapping into some fears about the changing nature of the country um, with the diversification of more rural and suburban areas and just the idea that, like, these are no longer just all white enclaves. And so I think there is some sort of racial anxiety that's embedded in these attacks that, you know, may be resonating because there is such rapid diversification in these places that haven't seen it really before.
2: Republicans aren't the only ones who are talking about crime
3: during elections or have talked about it. How do I have Democrats responded? So I think like there was a definite shift in rhetoric in 2020, obviously after the George Floyd protests, I do think that we saw a bit bit of a reckoning in the Democratic Party about how public safety should be addressed and what needs to be done to do that. And then a lot of that's influenced by the abolitionist movement. But of course, I don't think any mainstream Democrats are coming out saying that we should abolish prisons or any of that. But you do see the influences of that movement in the party now um, in terms of like, people talking about needing to reduce incarceration rates and the need to elect progressive prosecutors who are not going to put people in prison for a long time for minor crimes. And I think even though the defund the police rhetoric is not as prevalent as it maybe once was, we are seeing in terms of people's platforms, we should be putting more money into alternative public safety programs that don't necessarily like increase police presence, but might involve having social workers or some other kind of alternative first responder more involved in public safety. So I, I think that is something that we've seen shift. But of course, you know, the Democratic Party does also have a history of of invoking crime as like a boogeyman, but this is going more back into the nineties in terms of like Bill Clinton. Yeah. But it definitely has changed. And I think we're now seeing Democrats less embracing of law enforcement and trying to sort of shift the narrative to addressing these root causes of crime, which go far beyond policing.
2: I want to talk a little bit more about the political taboo surrounding the phrase, defend the police. You know, it's been used in prison abolitionist circles for quite some time, but became more mainstream in the wake of George Floyd's murder. How has this phrase gone at one point was something used by activists and now it's this political third rail. I feel like it's kind of going the opposite direction of the phrase black lives matter because i i remember there was a time where if you're a journalist you can get fired for tweeting black lives matter and now news organizations are claiming black lives matter. So i'm i'm interested in how just sort of the role of defund the police as this political third rail for these mainstream politicians.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it is such a pithy phrase, and I feel like that's why it's sort of sticking in terms of these Republican attack ads. It's just like effective way of summarizing, but also maybe oversimplifying the Democratic position. But it really has become sort of politically radioactive for them, and that's something that Democratic moderates have been saying for a long, long time, even like probably in 2020. I was covering some polling recently that found that just 27% of Americans support defunding the police with no explanation or definition of the race. But that might actually, like, not be advantageous for Democrats since this idea of reallocating police funding to other public safety initiatives and alternative first responders is actually really popular. Like, when given a choice, 62% of Americans supported funding the alternatives rather than maximizing funding to police departments. So... I think defund has made that idea more controversial than it needs to be, and Democrats should probably be, like, leaning into that as an affirmative defense of their policies. But, you know, I think the defund rhetoric is also just sort of creating maybe a fundamental misunderstanding of what exactly Democrats mean by that. And I think when you actually explain it to people, it is something that they agree with.
2: And. And are we seeing police get defunded? I mean, from what it appears, the budgets seem to kind of be getting larger rather than smaller.
3: Yeah, so notably, like in the American Rescue Plan, which was Biden's, there was a huge amount of funding that went to police and law enforcement agencies locally. But I think there have been, at the city level, some efforts to cut back police funding. I live in Austin, and there was an effective campaign to defund the police that I think people are now sort of rethinking. But overall, we haven't seen a massive decrease in police funding. So it is a bit of a a misleading campaign on Republicans' part.
2: A few weeks ago, we spoke with Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report about polling. And one of the things she mentioned when she was talking about the focus group she listened in on is that fear is really a motivating factor for voters. Is, Is that what we're seeing here?
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember at the pinnacle of the Democratic optimism burst that happened in late summer, there were some Democratic political strategists who were quoted as being like, well, just wait until Republicans give voters something else to be scared about. Clearly, that's what's happened here with crime and Republicans trying to invoke this like at the last minute in terms of making it a big midterm issue. So yeah, like, Fear is a is a huge motivator for for voters and and maybe a more effective one than trying to get them enthusiastic about a particular politician's policy platform and that's especially so in a midterm election when there's generally lower levels of turnout and getting people hyped about it is hard so yeah I, I definitely think crime is a big fear motivator here.
2: Is this also serving as a distraction from abortion? I mean, I'm thinking of suburban women voters. And uh, the polling suggests, you know, that they don't love the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned. And is this sort of a way to get them back
3: on the Republican side? Yeah, I think it's definitely trying to take the oxygen out of that and perhaps close any enthusiasm gap that might have existed between Republicans and Democrats on there. But yeah, especially among suburban women, I think these are two issues that that matter a lot and perhaps equally So if Republicans can drown out the news of Roe, um, which sort of was already waning in terms of importance in people's minds, then maybe this is an effective strategy for them.
2: All right. Nicole, thank you so much for joining
3: us. Thanks for having me.
2: Up next, we'll zoom in on a couple Senate races where the crime narrative is playing out. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Quillen Hill. So, we've gotten into the latest FBI crime statistics, but how is this narrative impacting the midterm elections? I sat down with Lizo to find out. She covers Congress and elections here at Vox. Haley, hi. It's so great to have you back. So, you joined us a few weeks ago to talk about a few of the Senate races. How have you seen this tough-on-crime rhetoric used in the election this go-round? So it's happening everywhere.
4: Republicans are basically slamming Democrats as soft on crime. And it's something they started doing in 2020 in the backlash to Black Lives Matter protests that were taking place. And they saw it be effective in a lot of swing districts. So this is their way of doubling down on that same message. And it's happening pretty much everywhere. It's happening in Georgia and Oregon and Nevada. But it's also happening more in places where Republicans have identified candidates that they think these attacks will really target. And there are also places where there have been specific instances that have made this issue of crime more salient to voters there. So two of those places are Pennsylvania and Wisconsin.
2: What is it about those particular Democrats, where Republicans are like, oh, wow, we can we can really hit them on this crime thing?
4: There are a couple parallels in those two places. So both candidates in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are progressive, and they've distanced themselves from that title. But historically, they've taken more progressive positions on criminal justice reform. They've talked pretty publicly on these issues. And so those are statements and positions that Republicans are seizing on in attack ads that are Distorting those positions, making them scarier than they are, trying to fearmonger people with what those folks have said. On top of that, you know, you have these larger cities in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, you know, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee, places that have seen upticks in crime during the pandemic. And so a lot of the suburban areas near there, there are voters who are like, you know, we don't want that to happen in our suburb. And Republicans are capitalizing on that concern as well.
2: You mentioned. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. In Wisconsin, remind us of the players in um, those races. The players are uh, Ron Johnson, the incumbent senator.
4: You know, he is known for being a fiscal conservative, historically has gotten increasingly more controversial over time, downplayed the violence of the insurrection, tried to pass off fake electors to Pence. Made a lot of anti vax comments during the pandemic. So, you know, that's the Republican. On the Democratic side, you have Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who was in the state house prior to that. He is a more progressive candidate. He was a community organizer prior to becoming, you know, an elected official. And he has really tried to make this case that he is here for the middle class. Ron Johnson is like out of touch with people in Wisconsin. You know, he's been trying to say he'll make it harder to fund Social Security and Medicare. So Barnes has really tried to make the case that he's he's the person for unions. He's the person for workers. He's the person for, you know, the everyday person in Wisconsin.
2: What exactly is Ron Johnson saying about Mandela Barnes when it comes to crime?
4: So he's gone after a couple of these positions that Mandela Barnes has taken before. So Barnes has been very vocal about wanting to end cash bail, and that's something that Johnson has attacked in numerous ads and basically implied that if that policy were to go into place, you'd have violent criminals who are, you know, out making things worse in Wisconsin. One of the things that I think has made this attack more salient to Wisconsin voters is, if you recall, there was the Waukesha Christmas Parade last year. We begin
1: with those new details on the breaking news out of Wisconsin. Right now, we know an SUV plowed through the Waukesha Christmas Parade this afternoon. Um, so his trial is happening right now.
4: So this oh, is something that's in that's the news. that's really top of mind. Yeah, it's, it's top of mind for people who are watching the nightly news. And so it's a way for Johnson to tie this incident to Barnes, even though, you know, Barnes had nothing to do with that specific attack, but it's trying to get at his policies by citing that what happened. Barnes's response has been, you know, I'm not saying no bail for everyone. I'm saying no cash bail for just all offenses, you know, kind of writ large, but let's evaluate each offense based on how risky it is, how harmful it could be. So he said his policy wouldn't have enabled Brooks to be released in the way that Johnson is alleging.
2: Do we see Barnes walking back his previous stances at all. One of the things he's tried to do, I think, is the phrase
4: defund the police has become this litmus test that Republicans are trying to use to say that Democrats are soft on crime. And so that's something that they've Repeatedly put against him, you know, that Mandela Barnes supports defunding the police. And he has said, no, that's not true. I've never supported that. What he has supported is he is interested in reallocating money from policing budgets to other programs, to other first responders, to other social services. So I think there's a question of, you know, does that basically mean he supports this larger movement without calling it by the same name?
2: Mm -hmm. Do we know how much this— conversation around crime is influencing this particular race in Wisconsin? It's certainly having a big impact. So when you talk
4: to experts and pollsters in the state, they say when the polling shift happened. So basically, over the summer, Barnes was doing all right. He was leading Johnson by a couple of points in polls pretty consistently. And now we've seen that dynamic completely flip in the last two months. Mm -hmm. And that change in polling, which is still within the margin of error, so I want to be careful about exaggerating how much it might mean. Um, But that change has coincided with a massive investment by Republicans in this um, soft-on-crime advertising in the last two months, particularly in September. And so as Republicans have invested money in this message, pollsters have seen Barnes' favorability go down, especially among independent voters who are going to be really central swing voters in this election.
2: I feel like there is a gigantic elephant in the room when it comes to this particular race. And it is race. I mean, Mandela Barnes is a young black man. What impact is race having on this? I mean, you know, we've seen some of the ads, and it feels at times more like a foghorn than a dog whistle. I'm curious how that's playing out there.
4: The ads are horrific, they are very blatantly racist. And historically, attacks about crime have always been racist. So already these attacks, you know, regardless of who the candidate is, is about stoking fear about the other, about cities, many of which have larger black populations Mm -hmm. than suburbs do. So that's like baseline already where, you know, a lot of this messaging is coming from.
0: Barnes wants to eliminate bail for violent felons, and his administration has already released over 800 criminals, including 44 child rapists. Take it from us. Mandela Barnes' policies are a threat to your family.
4: On top of that, in Wisconsin, you're adding in Republicans trying to tie Barnes to incidents, increases in crime that he has really nothing to do with. And that's clearly a way to stoke fear among white voters of having a black senator, basically, is like what it comes down to. So race is playing a huge role. I would say when you look at the way the ads are run, even the framing and the wording is— I I was shocked by it, Um, but for example, there's one ad where they're trying to tie Mandela Barnes to the, quote unquote, the squad, like AOC.
0: No surprise, crime is on the rise.
3: Mandela Barnes would eagerly join their squad. Barnes wanted to abolish ICE.
0: Open our borders to illegal immigrants. I, I
4: don't know how much more violence explicit violence you can get. The use of terms like extremist, you know, that's obviously a coded term as well. That's used a lot, too. And then there have been flyers where there have been filters applied to Barnes's face that darken his skin, mm. which, you know, local advocates have called out, to. Yeah,
2: I mean, what is racism without a little bit of colorism on the side? Yep. <laughs> uh, well, OK, we, we hear how Johnson is hitting Barnes. But how is Barnes hitting Johnson, especially, I think, of January 6th? That that definitely was a crime. Yeah, um, <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And there were, I mean, there were police officers who were injured, people who have died in the aftermath. Um, how is that playing out in this conversation? That has been something that
4: I think a lot of people have wanted Democrats in general to hit Republicans on harder because there's so much hypocrisy. Like, you say you are the quote-unquote law-and-order candidate, yet you're going to sit here and be like, January 6th was not a violent insurrection, basically deny what actually took place. And so it wasn't until more recently that you saw Democrats come out with an ad attacking Johnson featuring a law enforcement officer mm. saying he's not actually for us. You know, he's not willing to actually confront when something as horrific as January 6th happens, he won't speak out about it, despite, you know, saying like he he's here for the police or whatever statements he might be making.
2: Do we know how much money is going into sort of this this tough on crime aspect in all of these elections? Yeah, I mean there's a substantial amount in
4: Wisconsin. It's um at least eight million dollars have been spent just on specifically crime advertising alone by Republicans. And I think an interesting dynamic there is this Democratic group priorities USA actually found that when it came down to digital advertising, 70 plus percent of Republican spending is on crime versus around 15% on inflation, mm. which was surprising to me just because you would think that inflation, the economy, would be like the big issue. Yeah. Um, but but clearly Republicans have figured out crime is a motivator for people and it's something that they can use to try to tap into biases, et cetera.
2: Does anyone have any theories on why crime is sticking out more than inflation? Like I think of my daily life. I went to Trader Joe's. And two-puck is nearly $5 now. I'm just like, oh, God, how am I going to stretch all these groceries, like, week to week? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. that feels like a more pressing issue to me personally. But it sounds like that's not the case for a lot of independent voters.
4: It is a thing where I have talked to some people who studied the messaging of crime in like, political elections. And what they've said is because this is such an emotional, visceral appeal, Mm -hmm. it gets at something in people, of course, again, you know, biases, racism, like we've talked about, that, like, other issues maybe don't even get to, even if they are kitchen table every day, like, very important to your life issues. And I actually talked to someone who said the economy doesn't matter if someone is breaking into your house. Like, that Mm. was, like, exactly what he told me. So I do think— For some people, this fear and, like, you know, Republicans' willingness to kind of stoke it even more has a more powerful impact on how they're feeling, how they're thinking than even the economy in some circumstances.
2: So how is crime playing out in other big elections? It seems like Wisconsin is sticking out in this regard among, like, the other big, like, major close races. Republicans have been strategic about the places they're
4: targeting. So Pennsylvania, the other place we were discussing is another one where we've seen the polls really tighten and people, experts I've talked to there, also address that to crime and how much Republicans have invested in that message. And that's because Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's the Democratic candidate there, he also has been very vocal about taking more progressive stances on criminal justice reforms. He was the chair of the state's pardon board. And Mm. during his time leading that, commutations and pardons spiked dramatically. Um, And that's because he felt like it was really important to address instances when people were wrongly convicted or address instances when people have been in jail for 50 plus years and have not had a chance to be considered for a commutation. And he's made that a big priority. Republicans have seized on that too in ads to basically make the case like he's letting out criminals on the street is like the general, he's pro-murderer, quote unquote, is like one mm. of oh, the wow. phrases. Oh, wow, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, I think what we've seen across the board is, There are things and policy positions that candidates support. That's one thing. But the way that Republicans kind of capitalize on that is by distorting it, by misrepresenting it, by exaggerating it, you know, and just by making it this very scary position when the original position was not scary.
2: Fetterman is running against um, Dr. Mehmet Oz of daytime television fame. So— where is Dr. Oz in all of this? Like, what are his stances? Is he being hit with this crime conversation at all? Like, what's going on there? All great questions.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what, in the same way uh, that, you know, we see with the Johnson-Barnes race, Oz is— and his affiliated groups are much more comfortable going on the attack against Fetterman than they are providing any type of, like, here's how I would do this. Like, mm. It's much more like, you know, I think what you would expect is the same type of punitive, let me fund police to the extent we can, let's do the harshest possible. Yeah, I would you know? think
2: he would just, you know, you could easily copy paste what Ron Johnson is doing and Say it yourself. Yeah,
4: exactly. I, I think there was something called out recently, this inconsistency where Dr. Oz has been, you know, attacking John Fetterman for wanting to reduce sentences for, you know, certain certain people who are in prison. And then he, I believe, endorsed reducing sentences also for people who've been accused of low-level offenses. And so he's not expressed, I would say, a clear position besides, like, let me
2: just go after John Fetterman. So how has Fetterman responded to this idea that he's soft on crime?
4: So what he has said is he's tried to turn it on the Republicans, and he's tried to point to his own record when he was mayor of Braddock, which is a city in western Pennsylvania, and he said, I really helped lower gun violence in that city when I was mayor. That's like a sign that I can help address crime in the future and also take an approach that holds both perpetrators' accountable. But also the police accountable and have a more reform minded approach to these issues. And he's also talked about, you know, in the same way where we address the hypocrisy of Republicans not being willing to talk about January 6th, that they don't want to touch gun violence Mm. and that that. You know, if you truly want to address violent crime, that's gonna be an issue that you have to confront. But Republicans are historically very wary of enforcing any more aggressive gun control measures. And that's um something that I think Democrats are now starting to hit back on them on.
2: Do we know why Democrats haven't like it seems like they're playing defense rather than offense? Yes. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious how that happened.
4: Honestly, just felt like Republicans were willing to take this issue to a place that is so, you know, exaggerated, so misrepresented. It seems like Democrats maybe weren't exactly prepared for that degree of onslaught Mm. and also that degree of money being put into, Mm. you know, these these ads. Um, I think also it's— worth pointing out kind of the differences between Pennsylvania and um, Wisconsin. I was talking to um Cliff Albright who's one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter and he was like, you know, when you look at the way that two candidates were able to respond, like Mandela Barnes is trying to be careful of not being stereotyped again in his response as like an angry black man if he is coming off too aggressive and trying to attack Republicans. And that's he was talking about how that's a constraint he's mm. faced in when trying to go on the offensive. Like yeah. one of the critiques, I think Barnes Barnes has gotten a lot is his campaign hasn't done enough to do like what you said, like literally just be like, Republicans are not good on this issue on, on, you know, January 6th, on whatever other the case may be. Um, And that was, you know, something that he brought up is worth thinking about and considering.
2: Yeah, I'm honestly, I'm surprised I didn't think about that as a black person who is constantly like, I hope people don't find me angry and aggressive when i stand up for myself so seeing that play out on a political stage was not my first thought and it probably should have been
4: <laughs> yeah i i know it's it's awful to be like republicans are willing to do basically anything say basically anything and then you know you have the democratic candidate having to consider these possibilities which yeah they totally could weaponize against him which is awful.
2: So I'm I'm glad we're talking about Pennsylvania because you spent some time there this weekend talking to voters. Um where in Pennsylvania were you and what did you hear from those voters on the ground? Yeah, I was
4: in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So there are these four counties outside of Philly known as the collar counties. So that's Bucks County, Chester County, Montgomery County and Delaware County. Um and oh, I've they, heard of Delco. <laughs> yeah, De- also known as Delco. <laughs> <laughs> um but they are very high in population. And they've been known if you do well there, you could basically win the election Mm. or lose the election. And it's a very interesting like swing purple area. So um, Biden won all four in 2020. Hillary Clinton also won all four. But Pat Toomey, who is the Republican Senate candidate, won two of the four Mm, counties. So it's a place that does kind of swing, genuinely swing back And and it
2: sounds like they're willing to split tickets, which you do not hear about Yeah, absolutely.
4: (laughs) Yeah, they split tickets. Um, I think when you are there, like, visually, it literally feels like a purple place because Mm. you have, like, Oz signs. You had—there's, like, this very hilarious, like, visual of, like, a massive Mastriano sign surrounded by, like, 30 Josh Shapiro, like, little baby signs.
3: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So,
4: so I think it—I mean, to me, that's, like, a very illustrative of, like, how actually— really, truly split. Certain parts of these counties are, and Bucks County and Chester County are really the ones that are, you know, maybe could see more people support Republicans or just higher Republican turnout and energy.
2: Was there anything that voters said to you that really stuck out, that sort of offered clarity or, you know, you just found really interesting?
4: Yeah, I think one of the questions I have, and I this comes down to the way that people feel about just this larger issue of crime is, I've always been like, is this feeling, is this like anxiety that people have Mm. aligned with reality? Mm. So like, is it because, you know, more things are happening? And like we talked about, you know, the coverage of Philadelphia and like how certain instances of violent crime have increased there has really seemed to affect people's perceptions in the suburbs, even though they are not, you know, themselves in Philadelphia, it's close enough that it has, For people who are worried about this issue, like I heard from so many people who said crime was a top issue for them that like we're next basically was the concern. And I talked to um, someone who works for like a, a local government campaign on the Democratic side. And she was saying in our area, like an uptick in crime is not something we've observed from like a data standpoint. But people feel like there's increased, quote unquote, like lawlessness and like are more you know, worried as a result.
2: Yeah, I feel like I've I've even witnessed that in D.C., which is, you know, we live in a very blue city, but uh, neighborhood folks are like, hey, I, I see the news. What's happening? And, you know, crime is actually down in my neighborhood, but a lot of—and I live around a lot of, like, older people. Yeah. And, and they're fearful. And I even think of— you know, I have friends that live in the suburbs because they have kids now, and that's what they're doing. And they'll text me, and they'll be like, "I saw the news. Are you okay? Like, it looks so crazy." And like, I, I don't know. I'm I'm drinking juice in my in my kitchen. I didn't I didn't realize I was in danger. It sounds like this is just like it's this national phenomenon kind of happening. Total, it's that that exact same thing. And I
4: think a lot of the people I talked to were like they were very candid. They were like, "We don't know if crime is worse." Like mm. even the people who were like this is a top issue for me. Like they weren't, they were like, we don't know necessarily that it's like that bad, but we can only go off of like what we've seen on the local news. And like oh, that's what. fascinating. Yeah. So that, I mean, that did come up and I, I do think people have nuanced views. It's not just like, you know, I'm afraid of things, but like they were like, we don't know that these ads are all true too, you yeah. know, like I want to take some time to like investigate whether it's true or not. But, you know, people have just their normal daily lives. So like if you're getting slammed and like these are huge investments that Republicans are making, maybe a little bit sticks with you even if you're like, wait a second, this isn't exactly true.
2: Did you run into any undecided voters? I mean, it, it things feel so partisan now, but I'm I'm curious what you heard for those people who were like, yeah, I don't know who I'm voting for yet. I did
4: and I I I was really intrigued and and probably maybe disheartened about, like, state of democracy and everything because of it. Because for undecided voters, part of it, I think, too, is if you're undecided to this point, maybe you haven't been as closely engaged mm-hmm. in the election. So what I heard from a lot of those voters was I don't really like either candidate. And I think— what they would say is, like, we know Oz is a liar. We know he's a snake oil salesman, and I am i don't like that. But then they would be like, but I'm not sure about Fetterman because I just don't know enough about him. And I think that's another reason maybe that some of the Republican attacks have been effective in these two states because they're known. Like, they both won. Both Barnes and Fetterman have won statewide contests. I think Fetterman in particular has gotten a lot more national attention. At the same time, there's still room for them to get defined by the Republican candidate. So if someone doesn't know them as well and then they see like ad after ad after ad, you know, being like this person is the worst person ever. Like, again, I think any reasonable voter is going to question that. But it
2: doesn't mean that it doesn't have some
4: type of effect on how they perceive somebody.
2: Are there any specific crimes people are afraid of? Like, what is it that they are worried that's going to happen? Are they scared of a mass shooting? Mm -hmm. Are they scared of getting robbed? Yeah. One of the things
4: that was more local that people did say to me, which I think is, you know, I don't know how this ties to the data, but there in one of the places I was at, there had been recent robberies of like a local Wawa. Um, And so, yeah. And so I I do think for people who reference that, that was something that happened like maybe in the last month. And so like it was like a fear of more incidents like that.
2: So is this rhetoric working? Like, is this is this very possibly going to get the Republicans the majority in the Senate that they're looking for?
4: It is certainly working with some voters. Like, I do want to be clear, there are a lot of people I talk to who push back against it, a lot of Fetterman supporters, a lot of Democrats who are like, this is just naked fear-mongering. This is everything we talked about, just trying to tap into people's anxieties because Republicans don't have policies they can talk about. So what are they going to talk about besides
2: trying to make people scared? I want to touch on something that we've talked about a little bit, I think it's so hard to talk about crime and how we talk about crime in this country without talking about race, without talking about implicit bias, without even talking about, like, you know, ageism. People see young people and get scared. We hear over and over and over again that the coded language when it comes to talking about crime, for instance— won't work for Republicans much longer. We heard it after 2012 with the GOP autopsy, and people said it after 2016 when Trump won, saying, like, you know, this is the last election, we'll be able to do this. Is there a chance this kind of rhetoric could backfire? I do think for people I talked to who were like,
4: I don't really, you know, I'm not sure about what they're saying here and who did not feel like this was an issue that was, like, going to be decisive for, like, how they vote or how they're leaning, they were very clear-eyed about the way that this messaging was trying to capitalize on racism and to capitalize on how people have historically tried to frame this issue, and so I do think there's tons of voters who feel this way, and that that group is growing certainly. And I think that's why, as you've seen different demographic shifts, as well as just movement um, into various places across the country, you're seeing counties like these counties turn more blue and maybe become more solidly blue. So, um, yeah, absolutely, I, I think there's definitely a way that. That this could backfire. I think there's still a segment of voters that it seems to be working on at this point, but it's certainly not all voters or necessarily the majority of voters even.
2: Who does it seem like these voters trust when it comes to addressing crime? Like, do they trust either party, both, neither? What's, what's going on there? Historically, people have
4: believed, like, Republicans are tougher on crime, and because of the punitive approach that they've been willing to take and embrace, That is, like, I think what people see as a stronger message if crime is something that they're like, I want that addressed now. And it's like my worst, you know, current concern. Um, And so I think that is why you see Republicans also come back to it again and again, because they know they have an advantage on perception on that front.
2: All right. Lee, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Nicole Norea and Lizo for joining me today. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Afim Shapiro mixed today's episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quinn Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.